Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash WTY. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer. Welcome to this Pure Voice activity on alopecia areata. This activity comprises a series of five streaming episodes featuring Dr. Brett King. Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Brett King and I'm Associate Professor of Dermatology at Yale. Uh, for the first episode of this series, we are going to cover the risk and impact of alopecia areata. The lifetime prevalence of alopecia areata is about 2%. Males and females are similarly affected. The onset is typically in the first four decades of life. And just to be clear, alopecia areata is the same disease when it presents in the 70-year-old as when it presents for the first time in the 30-year-old or when it presents for the first time in the 7-year-old. There is no known racial predominance. The risk factors for alopecia areata are genetics, genetics, genetics. About 20% of patients with alopecia areata can identify a family member who also has alopecia areata. And this was really our first clue to the genetic underpinnings of the disease. A seminal paper in 2010, the Genome-Wide Association Study, demonstrated 18 genes associated with alopecia areata, Many of these genes are commonly found in association with other autoimmune diseases, which is probably why we see patients with alopecia areata commonly have polyautoimmunity. The concordance among monozygotic twins is about 55%, which highlights the complex genetics of the disease. Comorbidities in alopecia areata. Autoimmune thyroid disease is the most commonly described comorbidity of disease and occurs more than twice as often in patients with alopecia areata as in the general population. Atopic dermatitis occurs more than twice as often in patients with alopecia areata as in the general population. There are numerous other autoimmune and inflammatory diseases that are commonly seen in patients with alopecia areata. These include systemic lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, psoriasis, vitiligo, inflammatory bowel disease. Now the impact of disease. Alopecia areata can be disfiguring. And when it is severe, it is commonly associated with grave illness. We all recognize the person who has no scalp hair, no eyebrows, and no eyelashes as somebody who has cancer and is undergoing chemotherapy. It's very interesting to think about this in the context of a recent study of over 2,000 laypersons in which they were shown three images of the same individual with varying degrees of hair loss. 30% of respondents saw those with the most severe hair loss as sick. 27% of respondents perceive the individuals as unattractive. There's profound stigma uh, and bias, if you will, against people who have severe hair loss. 
This can be quantified in other ways, looking at health-related quality of life, when we look at DLQI scores in patients with alopecia areata versus patients with psoriasis or atopic dermatitis, we see similar, if not worse, quality of life in alopecia areata. I think that this is important because if we're not hesitating to treat patients with severe psoriasis and severe atopic dermatitis with systemic therapies, we shouldn't be hesitating to treat our patients with severe alopecia areata either. That wraps up episode one. Please join me for the next episode in which we discuss the pathophysiology underlying alopecia areata and how that is driving therapeutic development. In this episode, we are going to discuss the immunological pathways underlying alopecia areata that are driving therapeutic development. Alopecia areata is a relatively common cause of hair loss that has an autoimmune basis. Our first clue of this was in 1982 with the seminal discovery that the hair bulb was surrounded by a lymphocytic infiltrate. This explains why the most commonly used therapies have been those that target T-cells. Let's look at the data for these therapies. Intralesional corticosteroids are the mainstay of therapy for limited hair loss in alopecia areata. The average hair-bearing surface area of the scalp is about 700 square centimeters. And when intralesional triamcinolone is used, an injection is given approximately every one centimeter. This means that for somebody with approximately 10% scalp hair loss, 70 square centimeters of scalp involvement, this person is going to need about 35 or more injections. The person who has 20% scalp hair loss is going to need 70 or more injections. This is a lot to ask of patients. It's not a painless procedure, and it has to be repeated monthly for three or four sessions before maximum efficacy is achieved, assuming we do achieve a response. This helps us to arrive quite organically at the concept that alopecia areata involving more than 20% of the scalp surface area merits systemic therapy. What is the data for systemic therapy? We don't have randomized controlled trials of agents like cyclosporin, methotrexate, or azathioprine in alopecia areata, and so we're going to rely on retrospective data. There was a recent retrospective review of patients in a large hair loss clinic, and what we learned was that use of cyclosporin, methotrexate, and azathioprine is rarely successful without concomitant systemic corticosteroids, in this case, prednisolone. We don't really think of chronic prednisone, certainly not chronic prednisone in combination with cyclosporin or methotrexate or azathioprine as appropriate therapy for chronic disease in dermatology. This really highlights the unmet need in this disease. 
we need reliably effective therapies. In 2014, we had the seminal uh, paper published in Nature Medicine highlighting that the interaction of the T cells with the hair follicle epithelial cells is driven by interleukin-15, a pro-inflammatory cytokine secreted from follicular epithelial cells that recruits and activates cytotoxic T cells. Cytotoxic T cells in turn secrete interferon gamma, which binds its receptor on follicular epithelial cells, leading to further secretion of IL-15. And we get this cyclical action leading to inflammation and subsequent hair loss. IL-15 and interferon gamma both signal through the JAK-STAT pathway, which leads to the concept of treatment of alopecia areata with JAK inhibitors. Please join me in episode three to look at the data for JAK inhibitor treatment of alopecia areata. In this episode, we will discuss recent advances in the treatment of alopecia areata, in particular JAK inhibitors. The story started back in 2014 with the paper Killing Two Birds with One Stone, Oral Tofacitinib Reverses Alopecia Universalis in a Patient with Plaque Psoriasis. This was really the first uh, demonstration of reversal of disease with a targeted mechanism. This was not a random discovery, but rather was based on emerging data that we covered in episode two, showing that IL-15 and interferon gamma are important drivers of disease. This Case report was followed by other reports and case series showing repeatedly efficacy of the JAK inhibitor tofacitinib and also ruxolitinib as well as other JAK inhibitors for treatment of alopecia areata. The severity of alopecia tool score or the SALT score is an assessment of the amount of scalp hair loss. In the clinical trials that we're going to discuss, we're going to have patients starting with baseline SALT scores above 50 uh, and up to 100, and we want to see over the course of 24 or 36 weeks of treatment or longer, uh, very large changes in the SALT score or attainment of very low absolute SALT scores. So starting with ruxolitinib, 1.5% cream, we have a failed trial. Over 24 weeks, we have only 5% of patients achieving a SALT 90 or a 90% improvement in baseline SALT score. The first oral JAK inhibitor that we're going to discuss, Duruxolitinib, phase two clinical trial data at the two highest doses of Duruxolitinib over 24 weeks of treatment we have somewhere between 29 and 42% of patients achieving a 75% improvement in baseline SALT scores. Think about somebody starting with 100% scalp hair loss and at the end of 24 weeks of treatment having 25% or less scalp hair loss. 
now ritlicitinib. Phase 3 clinical trial data. This was a clinical trial with a 24-week primary endpoint at which 20 to 30% of patients achieve an absolute SALT score less than or equal to 20, meaning less than or equal to 20% scalp hair loss. And over another 24 weeks of treatment, we see that 30 to 40% of patients achieve this low SALT score. And now for another oral JAK inhibitor, baricitinib, again, phase three data from two identical clinical trials recently presented, looking at the proportion of patients achieving an absolute SALT score less than or equal to 20 over 36 weeks of treatment, between 17 and 35% of patients achieve this low SALT score depending on the dose of baricitinib. And so we have, with three oral JAK inhibitors, promising data for effective treatment of alopecia areata. Please join me in episode four, in which we discuss the risk profile of oral JAK inhibitors and think about how this bears on our patients with alopecia areata. So the safety profile of JAK inhibitors. There has been a lot of media attention around this lately. Um, I think really because this class of medicines is going to be so broadly important uh, for us in dermatology. Let's think about common AEs and then AEs of special interest, beginning with adverse effects that are commonly uh, reported with use of JAK inhibitors in clinical trials. We have the usual suspects, upper respiratory tract infections, headaches, nasopharyngitis, nausea, and interestingly, acne. Acne, I think, is a new AE to us. We're very uh, used to treating acne, but we're not used to acne as being an adverse effect of the medicines that we use to treat other dermatologic conditions. Now, thinking about adverse events of special interest. So these are the things that give us pause when we think about use of a medicine. So here we're thinking about serious infections, major adverse cardiovascular events, thromboembolic events, and malignancy. The rates of these events are very, very low in clinical trials of JAK inhibitors for the treatment of dermatologic diseases, including alopecia areata. However, however, we must be aware of the risks and have discussions with our patients before we embark on their treatment with these drugs. And this leads us to the concept of risk mitigation. In whom are we going to be particularly cautious about use of JAK inhibitors. And so we are going to use caution when we think about using JAK inhibitors in older patients. We're going to use caution or think carefully about the use of JAK inhibitors in our obese patients, current or past smokers, patients with a history of diabetes, patients with a history of coronary artery disease, patients with a history of thromboembolism or 
patients in whom they have an inherited coagulation disorder. And then lastly, patients with a current or history of malignancy other than non-melanoma skin cancer, we're also going to have to be thoughtful. Additionally, we're going to discontinue treatment um, of JAK inhibitors if there's no evidence of therapeutic benefit within a reasonable amount of time. Lastly, monitoring and routine care of patients taking JAK inhibitors. So screening and monitoring labs are going to be done per guidelines. But in general, my practice is to, prior to starting JAK inhibitor treatment, check hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and HIV. We're going to check for latent tuberculosis. And we're also going to check fasting lipids, complete metabolic panel, and CBC with differential. At one month, we're going to check fasting lipids. If there's no change in fasting lipids from baseline, we don't have to check lipids again. At one month, we're also going to check liver function panel and CBC with differential to make sure that there are no changes. Subsequently, we're going to check liver function panel and CBC with differential again here every three to six months or more often for dose increases. And again, I would encourage everybody because I think that this is going to vary between JAK inhibitors, follow guidelines for subsequent monitoring. Think about vaccinations per guidelines. For example, herpes zoster vaccination in patients older than 50 years of age. We're going to do skin checks annually, examining for non-melanoma skin cancer and other skin cancers. In all of our patients, we're going to do age-appropriate cancer screening uh, to be sure that this is up to date. And I think considering all of this, we will optimize safety in our patients uh, so that we can feel comfortable with the use of JAK inhibitors. And that wraps up this episode. Please join me in episode five, in which we are going to talk about the evaluation of patients with alopecia areata, bringing together everything from episodes one to four. In this episode, we are going to talk about how to evaluate patients with alopecia areata, and we are going to develop a simple treatment algorithm, incorporating the data from this entire series. Earlier, we talked about the severity of alopecia tool score as an assessment of the amount of scalp hair loss. Of course, this uh, tool gives us an assessment of the absolute amount of scalp hair loss, but doesn't give us reference to mild, moderate, or severe disease. The alopecia areata IGA, or the alopecia areata investigative global assessment, is a tool that was developed to understand disease severity by the amount of scalp hair loss. With this tool, limited or mild alopecia areata is 1 to 20% scalp hair loss. Moderate alopecia areata can be conceived of as 21 to 49% scalp hair loss. Severe or very severe alopecia areata can be thought of as somebody with 50 to 100% scalp hair loss. Thinking of the disease more holistically, taking account of other hair-bearing surface areas or the impact of disease, 
we have the recently developed alopecia areata scale, or ASK. This scale is anchored in the percent of scalp hair loss, so mild, moderate, and severe, according to the categories or the ranges of scalp hair loss that we just discussed in the AAIGA, only now we have an opportunity to modify disease assessment when other important features are present. Noticeable involvement of eyebrows or eyelashes, an inadequate response to at least six months of treatment, diffuse multifocal positive hair pull test or negative impact on psychosocial functioning resulting from alopecia areata, in addition to scalp hair loss, leads to upgrading the severity assessment. In the presence of any of these features, we're going to upgrade the patient who would otherwise have mild disease to moderate disease or the patient who has moderate disease up to severe disease. And now, how do we think about psychosocial impairment and how to evaluate it in clinic? We're usually not going to administer a quality of life instrument, so how do we assess this quickly? Answers to these questions help us understand that a patient is affected. Do you cry about your hair loss? On a scale of 0 to 10, how bothered are you by your hair loss? How many times each day do you think about your hair? These questions help us understand that somebody is profoundly affected by their disease or not. For school-age kids, we're going to ask about days missed at school or withdrawal from extracurricular or social activities. And lastly, thinking about a treatment algorithm that incorporates all of the treatments that we've talked about, including JAK inhibitors. As I pointed out in an earlier episode, intralesional corticosteroids are the mainstay of therapy for mild alopecia areata. But for patients with more severe disease, especially patients with severe alopecia areata, we're going to think about JAK inhibitors as first-line therapy. In a recent consensus meeting of international experts in alopecia areata, it was felt that JAK inhibitors would be first-line therapy for severe alopecia areata. Of course, the other treatments that we discussed, other systemic immunosuppressive agents, are also uh, in these uh, boxes for moderate to severe alopecia areata treatment. And over time, we'll have to sort out how best to navigate these various treatments. And with that, I want to thank you very much for your attention in this and other episodes of Exploring Alopecia Areata. Thank you. This has been an activity published by Pure Voice.